Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin from the Australian National Centre for Oceans, Resources and Security. In June 1999, the United Nations Mission in East Timor, or UNAMED, was established to organise and conduct a popular consultation on the basis of a direct, secret and universal ballot to ascertain whether the East Timorese people opted for special autonomy for East Timor within the Republic of Indonesia or East Timor's full independence. The referendum was held on the 30th of August 1999 and the overwhelming vote was for independence. After the result was announced on the 4th of September, violent clashes instigated by a suspected anti-independence militia sparked a humanitarian and security crisis. Many East Timorese were killed, with as many as 500,000 displaced and around half of that number fleeing the territory. A multinational UN peacekeeping force to evacuate foreign nationals caught up in the bloodshed, restore order and save lives was quickly called for. This involved, as we will hear in this podcast and in the second edition of this podcast, a number of different operations. These operations were among the Royal Australian Navy's largest in the post-Cold War era. To discuss this significant chapter in the RAN's history, I'm joined by a very distinguished panel. They are Commodore Jim Stapleton, who was commander of Interfet's naval forces. Earlier in his career, Commodore Stapleton commanded the patrol boats Barricade and Attack, the destroyer Escort Derwent, and the destroyer Hobart. Vice Admiral Russ Crane, who as a captain commanded the replenishment ship Success in the operation. Earlier in his career, Vice Admiral Crane had commanded Clearance Diving Team 2, the Minehunter Curlew, and the destroyer Escort Derwent. From 2008 to 2011, he was Chief of Navy. Associate Professor David Letts previously served in the Navy and was the Fleet Legal Officer during the latter stages of the Interfet deployment. He subsequently deployed to his team as the Chief Legal Advisor of the UN Peacekeeping Force for eight months in 2002. And finally, Captain Vaughan Rickson, who as a Lieutenant Commander, commanded the fast sea lift catamaran HMAS Jarvis Bay. In his subsequent career, he was the Defence Attaché in Beijing and later in Seoul. He is now Director of Maritime Plans at Headquarters Joint Operations and he joins us today from Hawaii. So first off, to set the scene, David Letts, could you briefly explain the situation on the ground in East Timor following the announcement of the outcome of the referendum? How was Interfet formed? Thanks, Rob. Um, I think it's important in understanding the situation on the ground to just uh, be aware of a little bit of the the history of um, East Timor uh, following Indonesia's uh, annexation of, of that um, territory. Um, and it's also important to note that Australia was the only country that actually recognised Indonesian sovereignty. We did that back in 1979, recognised Indonesian sovereignty over East Timor. Um, in 1999, uh, when the decision to, to put together a uh, popular consultation or a referendum on independence was taken, there was some sort of recognition by the UN and Portugal, the former colonial power, of uh, Indonesian sovereignty in fact or Indonesian presence. And that was uh, reflected through agreements between the UN and Portugal and Indonesia in May 1999 that set up the, uh, the vote that took place on the 30th of August. But after the vote, um, after the result of the vote became o obvious that it was an overwhelming uh, vote for independence, 
the uh, situation on the ground deteriorated and uh, there was widespread bloodshed, um, rioting, looting um, and, and real threats to life. This, um, this situation called for a, an international response. The UN at the time was not immediately amenable to uh, responses. The, the situation in Kosovo a few months earlier had shown that um, with the NATO no-fly uh, zone over Kosovo. So they were really looking for someone to take a lead, and, um, and, and that's where um, there, there were complications. Part of the complications were that the someone was clearly going to be Australia, uh, as things turned out. But Australia um, was relying upon diplomacy with Indonesia and ultimately had to rely on an Indonesian presidential statement of 12 September 99, which basically said that there was a readiness of Indonesia to accept an initial peacekeeping force through the United Nations. Australia responded to that declaration or statement by the Indonesian president with a letter from our Foreign Affairs Minister to the Secretary-General um, two days later on the 14th of September 99, where Australia in effect said that we would take the lead in putting together an international force. And then on uh, 15th of September, a day later, um, the UN Security Council uh, delivered Resolution 1264 on 15 September 99, using its powers under Chapter 7 of the Charter of the United Nations, which means that it had recognised that the situation was a threat to international peace and security. In that uh, resolution, there's call for the establishment of a multinational force under a unified command structure, and tasks are listed in the, in the resolution. There's also continuing recognition of a role for the government of Indonesia. The resolution doesn't actually say Australia is going to be in charge of this multinational force, but uh, that was the background work that had been done through that letter um, from Australia's Foreign Affairs Minister in a day previously. So Jim Stapleton, Dave's described the escalating international and diplomatic situation, but also the, the fact that things were deteriorating on the ground very quickly. Now, you were Commodore Flotillas, the senior one-star officer in the seagoing fleet. Can you describe the planning you embarked on with your team to get ready for a deployment? Thanks, Rob. Um, the planning needs to probably be considered in the light of a number of operations underway at the time and the ADF command and control structure. There are operational commitments expanding in the Persian Gulf in Damascus. There was planning for Operation Spitfire, which was uh, a services assisted evacuation plan for East Timor, uh, should things deteriorate to the extent that we had to extract Australians, plus others to be determined um, from East Timor. And there was Operation Brand Cards 1 and 2, uh, which were to, again, services assisted evacuations uh, in the local area. Um, so there was plenty on. Um, the ADF command and control is another major consideration. It was sort of in a state of change. It was even expressed by some as experimental. At the apex of the existing command and control structure was the CDF, um, acting under, of course, the direction of the government. Supporting him as a staff, a small joint element, 
in Russell under a two-star. CDF also received detailed technical and operational advice from the service chiefs. As part of the new structure, there was a joint headquarters started up in Sydney called AST, Australian Theatre Command, and it was headed by a two-star and was co-located with Maritime Headquarters. And the commander of the AST was to exercise command over deployed units and that commander also had direct access to the domain or environmental commanders, such as the maritime commander, the land commander, and the air commander. Finally, the other joint entity was the commander joyable, deployable joint force headquarters, then under the command of Major General Peter Cosgrove. Um, and it was a HQ upon which the HQ Interfet was finally based. Located in Brisbane, in the headquarters of one division, it was really a headquarters in waiting with an outline organisation framework which showed the presence of maritime and air component. It was considered that in time of need, this headquarters would deploy forward to the AO. And further, it was considered possible that this joint headquarters could operate as a combined headquarters that is able to command coalition forces. In summary, while HQAST was bypassed as the operation progressed in terms of operational information and decisions, it was, however, heavily relied upon for logistics and operational support. The maritime component of the deployable Joint Force Headquarters had been established at MHQ in Sydney in January 1999. Late in August 1999, as East Timor became more and more violent and unstable, a small team moved from maritime headquarters in Sydney to Brisbane to join the deployable Joint Force Headquarters. The bulk of the naval component moved from Sydney to Brisbane on about the 7th of September, just 13 days before D-Day, and thereafter became a naval component commander under the Interfet commander, General Peter Cosgrove. First meetings with the deployable Joint Force Headquarters team were unsettled in terms of what the real requirements were on which we were to base a maritime concept of operation. The international and domestic situations were still developing. It wasn't until the early hours of the 15th of December, 15th of September, five days before D-Day, that the UN Resolution 1264 was approved. Forces had not been formally assigned, but were moving towards Darwin while continuing their preparations for the full spectrum of maritime warfare. The integration of the planning team had its challenges, and although some worked together for a short period before this, some confusion still existed about what each party was bringing to the table. This was overcome quite quickly, I thought, through the great leadership of the top, that's the Interfect Commander, General Peter Cosgrove, and the team melded very quickly afterwards and plans were drafted to meet the operational situation in uncertain circumstances. 
the tendency at the start for the other components to be treated by the global joint force headquarters is just an add-on. Slowly dissipated and the team fully integrated despite the cultural differences and really at the time only a slight knowledge of what each component brought to the operation. I think that summarises the background to the to the planning stages early on, hoping that that left us virtually just over a week and five days in reality from the release of 1246, which was our mantra for the operation. So, Jim, just to take that a little further, you mentioned that the the command arrangements that were shaking out as you were as you were planning, and that you had also to think about a possible combined operation. Now, the the maritime force, like the rest of Interfet, did involve um, international forces. Can you tell us a bit about who those forces were and how the integration went? Sure. Um, the international forces consisted of units from 10 nations and they all played a significant role both as a capability that they added to the operations intervention and as a demonstration of the international will and support for East Timor and the Interfed operation. Australia obviously provided the most of 14 ships deployed to East Timor between the start of the operation noting that the Navy always had to get there a little bit earlier, um, to be there for D-Day on the 20th, the ship sailed from Darwin on around about the 19th, I believe. And the ships from Australia, which made up the initial force, included Anzac, Adelaide, Success and Darwin. Jarvis Bay, Tobruk, of course. Then there were some smaller, some smaller units, Balak, Papin, Brunei and Labuan. Australian Clearance Diving Team 4 as well from the 9th, as well as Honsu. I believe it was important for the harbour to be surveyed. So we got a hold of the Hydrographic Operational Deployment Survey Unit who were then dispatched in the first assets to do a recce of Dili Harbour to make sure it was as charted. There were no additional wrecks, there were no additional rocks which hadn't been reported. And of course, then we had OSCDT 4 who did a survey of the berthing arrangements before the ships came into harbour. So they were the forces from Australia. Um, from overseas, international support. From New Zealand, our ANZAC partner, we had Taha and the tanker Endeavour from the start. And then we had HMNZS Canterbury from the 26th of September. The US provided the Aegis Cruiser Mobile Bay, who was operating with Australian ships off the coast in an exercise in the early stages. And this provided us with an improved air surveillance capability uh, for the units during the approach phase. Uh, to East Timor and the early days of the operation. There was a marine amphibious group in the proximity of the AO. Remember that President Clinton had said that no US boots were to be on the ground. And these units included the USS Delay Lou Wood, 
USS Peleliu and USS Juneau. Juneau. Now, the USN also made available some fueling um, in the form of USN tankers Kelelu, San Jose, and Kipikinu, who were all passing through the area during various phases of the operation. The French frigate Vandermeer um, was there from the start and was later joined by her sister ship, the Periel, in mid-October. Later in October came Sirocco, which was an amphibious capability ship, and at the end of November came Jacques Cartier. Both had very impressive amphibious capabilities and both also carried out an impressive landing in Dilly Harbour, uh, albeit that it had already been secured, but it was an impressive demonstration. The UK provided HMS Glasgow for two weeks at the start, um, from the 19th of September, as she was on deployment in Australia and was also exercising with the RAN. Glasgow provided a welcome addition to the anti-air warfare capability of the group at the start of the operation. Singapore provided a, a very valuable amphibious assets in RNS Intrepid and Excellence from the 10th of December to mid-December, from the 10th of October to mid-December. They were critical to the interfectory supply ops and worked very hard in support of interfet logistic support things. RNS Perseverance joined the Naval Department in January 2000 and stayed until mid-February. Canada provided the other critical logistic asset in fuel to replace success from the 23rd of October to the 23rd of January. Projector stayed and joined us um, from Canada. It took, us a, uh, it took her a few weeks to get across, obviously. Uh, and she stayed in harbour and then went out to refuel from other ships as well and provided logistic support in the terms of fuel, which were critical uh, throughout the operation. Italy provided the amphibious ships ITS San Giusto, and from mid-October until 15th of February, she provided great assistance in support, supporting logistic ops. Another impressive, uh, impressive amphibious asset which would have been a great value from the start, uh, but came, but was still a great service. The Portuguese frigate Vasco da Gama arrived on the 26th of October and joined the service combatant forces on patrol after a settling in period. Thailand provided a medium landing ship Surin from 28th of October to the 23rd of February. She made a valuable contribution again to the coalition amphibious team and logistic support. I visited most of the ships deployed for the operation and mostly in company with the International Force Commander East Timor General Cosgrove, who was always very conscious of managing and nurturing the coalition relationship and partners. Vaughan Rickson, Jim's just talked a bit about some of the challenges, including some of the logistics challenges, and one of the most enduring images of Interfed is, of course, the futuristic-looking Jarvis Bay, making a fast passage between Darwin and Dili in return. Can you tell us a bit about why the RAN chartered Jarvis Bay, and what capabilities did she bring to the operation in particular? Yeah, sure, Rob. Um, 
as Commodore Stableman just mentioned, um, in 1998, there was a, a significant load on the ADF and a number of uh, activities that had been identified um, had caused us to bring uh, certain units to uh, heightened notice. Um, one brigade in Darwin was a 28 days notice um, to respond to regional concerns. Um, Defence planners had identified that we had a potential shortfall in lift capability at the time caused by a confluence of upgrades to the Hercules fleet and um, looming maintenance issues with uh, Canimbla and Manura uh, and an extension of life for Dubuque. Um, so there was a range of options were considered um, from leasing aircraft, <clears throat> loaning ships from other navies uh, or taking a heavy lift ship up from trade. Um, but eventually ice fell on um, international catamarans, INCAT, in Hobart. Um, INCAT 45 was the last of their 86-metre class um, aluminium hull wave-piercing catamarans. Um, built for short-haul passenger and vehicle operations and had a capacity to, to, to carry um, large tour buses. Um, originally destined for a European route, um, arrangements had founded uh, within CAT and after a brief sortie on the Bass Strait service, which is the longest fast ferry route in the world and probably one of the most uncomfortable, um, the ship was uh, laid up in the builder's yard at the back end of 1998. So as a short-term solution to our lift requirement, the RAN entered into a two-year charter of NCAT 45 um, in May 99, um, naming and commissioning the ship HMAS Jarvis Bay on the 10th of June that year. Uh, we um, pulled together three crews or, th or a, a, large, a larger number of people in the intended two 24-man crews for the ship. Um, port and starboard crews operating like an aircraft crew, handing the platform over between each other uh, as required. Uh, each crew consisted of a CO, a couple of watchkeeping officers, um, engineering management and watchkeeping uh, sailors. Um, the engineering spaces were all unmanned um, and there was a spread of other categories uh, between the two crews to provide uh, all of the services needed to manage the crews as well as to provide passenger management and a bridge lookout capacity. Uh, we also had a small ship's army detachment in each of the crews. Uh, this is a very new concept for the RAN. We had to implement um, a number of merchant marine processes to operate the ships in, or operate the ship in class. Uh, we fitted long-range fuel tanks, um, added some strength into sections of the vehicle deck, and a uh, an A-frame davit over one of the doors at the stern, one of the stern doors, to allow us to self-deploy um, the vehicle ramps. Um, painted her grey, uh, but essentially she remained the baseline commercial configuration throughout the uh, throughout the activities. Um, she could carry 415 deadweight tonnes, um, which was the combination of passengers, fuels and fuel and vehicles. So there was always a trade-off um, of range and loadout, uh, but the maximum capacities were based on um, 867 passengers, which was the limit of seats and life jacket stowage, um, about 190 passenger cars, uh, just under 80 um, Land Rover 4x4 types, um, we could get 24 Unimog trucks in there or 24 um, light infantry vehicles or armoured personnel carriers if we uh, added uh, 
deck coverings so that they we could get them onto the uh, get the track vehicles onto the uh, aluminium decks, uh, and we could get four Mack truck trailer combos into the bus bay. But that bottom line was the uh, the four hundred and fifteen dead weight ton limit uh, gave us a, a rule of thumb of uh, five hundred troops, five hundred miles of a few vehicle and some cargo. Um, the ship was neither armoured nor armed, uh, and the concept of operations didn't require either. Um, Jarvis Bay was intended for transport to and from fixed facilities in a benign or at least a secure environment. Now, Russ Crane, while all of these preparations are underway for Interfet and the forces are waiting uh, permission or authorisation to go into East Timor, you were at sea in success just off Darwin for Operation Spitfire, which was the operation to evacuate Australians and other foreign nationals from East Timor if it became necessary. Can you tell us a bit about that and also about your preparations for success's role in the upcoming Interfed operation? Yeah, certainly. Um, I might just go back a couple of weeks. Uh, we, we originally, uh, the ship sailed uh, from Sydney uh, in August of 99 for South, a Southeast Asian deployment uh, essentially prepared for Operation Brancard, which was the operation we touched on earlier. So we'd embarked a great deal of additional equipment and contingency stores uh, prior to our departure on the premise that there was a degree of regional unrest um, and there was a likelihood that the ship may be required to assist in the evacuation of Australians and um, other nationals from a range of specified areas at the time. So, uh, as I recall, when we arrived in the South China Sea, uh, which was, uh, we were heading for exercise activity, um, and before the start of the programmed exercise that we were to participate in, um, we were recalled back to Australia and directed to stand by to support uh, evacuation of uh, East Timor, in other words, uh, as you've suggested, Operation Spitfire. On being recalled and after we arrived in Darwin, um, we continued to replenish as much of our stores, our contingency stores as we could, uh, further storing, anticipating the need that the ship would need to sail uh, with a range of um, stores to support that evacuation. After uh, that further storing, the anticipated needs of the ship and we sailed and exercised with a range of international navies, some of which have been uh, mentioned, in the Darwin exercise areas in anticipation of being called forward into the AO on execution of uh, Operation uh, Spitfire. In the end, um, the maritime element of, of, of Op Spitfire was not called forward. Uh, and the task was successfully completed by airlift. So, um, Despite the preparation, uh, there was no requirement for the maritime component for a brand cut. So the ship then went, uh, we berthed in Darwin uh, on the 16th of September, uh, and we took on further stores and preparations for uh, Operation Stabilise um, when it was executed. Now, the sorts of things we embarked were things that we perhaps hadn't had a great deal of uh, familiarity with in the past. We were embarking things like uh, fuel bladders for transfer of fuel ashore as part of a vertical replenishment using our embarked helicopter. Um, 
I remember pallets of uh, ration packs uh, being embarked. I remember um, a great deal of um, 75 kilogram gas bottles, um, hundreds of, be- of these gas bottles being embarked, clearly to support um, uh, replenishments ashore uh, and provide power ashore for uh, our land forces. Uh, as was mentioned earlier, uh, OSCDT 4 was embarked, um, the hydrographic. Uh, deployment unit was also embarked with all of their equipment um, and as much of fresh provisions as we could take as well as uh, frozen provisions in anticipation of uh, not being able to get back to Darwin um, quickly. It was, as I recall, an extremely busy couple of days uh, as we prepared. Uh, in the end, CN visited us uh, on uh, Saturday, on the 17th of September, and the ship sailed at 17.30 that day with uh, Tobruk, Adelaide, Anzac, Glasgow and Takaha uh, from Darwin. Uh, after replenishing all of those uh, ships, including Darwin and USS Mobile Bay in the morning of Sunday the 17th, on execution of Op Stabilise later that day, uh, the ship commenced passage to Dili, transiting uh, the Timor Sea in company with Anzac and Darwin. Well, Vaughan, Rickson, can, you've talked a little bit about the work to bring Jarvis Bay into service. When did she actually end up joining the assembling force and, and preparing for the East Timor operation? Um, we were probably um, a little bit ahead of other units being prepared, I think, um, because of the, 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 the way that the ship was brought into service. Uh, as I said, the crews were selected and posted in late April and, and we knew sort of what we were expected to do but had no, no details at the time. Um, but we met up at the Australian Maritime College in Launceston on the 10th of May and started high-speed navigation training um, relevant engineering and, and, and class, uh, so high-speed class code training. Uh, and a week or so later, we took delivery of uh, Jarvis Bay, or then INCAT 045, um, in Hobart. And by the end of the month, um, we're um, unberthing, berthing, and conducting high-speed runs on Storm Bay and around the southern parts of uh, Tasmania. Um, we commissioned uh, on the 10th of June, a very wet day, I remember it, Clearly, and uh, and then immediately sailed north. Uh, we did a, a quick um, familiarisation sail for the people that were there, and then uh, disembarked them and headed north. Um, we docked in Sydney for some um, essential work and some minor uh, uh, additional fitting. Um, we then proved the ship's emergency escape slide system, which was a, a Another piece that was a bit like an aircraft with an emergency stage slide to the rife lafts and, and part of the uh, man- passenger management uh, requirements. And we uh, then continued to work up up the coast um, and then doing mission readiness evaluations out of Townsville on the way. Um, we were bringing in um, new ways of navigating to the Navy, um, electronic charts, radar overlays, um, no fixes. Um, new ways of engineering watchkeeping, relying heavily on remote monitoring, um, new concepts in habitability. Um, there was no galley, there were no mess decks, and there were no bunks on board this ship. Uh, most of the things were normal for merchant ferry fast crews, um, but we were working out how to do it in a, in a formal military environment and um, with the uncertainty of what sort of lethal force might be being ranged against us uh, as we did it. Uh, we completed. Um, 
Mike, read the starboard cruise mission readiness uh, evaluation uh, first, uh, and then we disembarked and drove up to Cairns while uh, the port crew did theirs, and then the two crews joined together um, as we transited the Inner Barrier Reef, um, passing merchant ships coming south uh, with closing speeds well above 60 knots. Um, that keeps you focused. And we arrived in Darwin on the 30th of June. Uh, we spent the next few weeks um, getting families that had moved north settled in, showing off the ship to a range of visitors, um, proving the loading arrangements for the ship at uh, various Darwin wharves and uh, trialling some different offloading techniques. And then around early August, the, the, the two COs um, in particular um, started becoming involved in the planning for Ox Spitfire. Um, Jarvis Bay uh, left Darwin on the 7th of September with both crews, um, a three RAR rifle company and some clearance divers embarked, and we loitered uh, a little over 12 miles from the East Timorese coast uh, of Wetar Strait, um, about four hours from Dilling and Company with uh, HMAS Darwin. Uh, the task was the possible evacuation of uh, refugees and displaced people um, following the vote. Uh, we conducted two more sorties like that, um, neither which required us to enter territorial limits, and the last of these uh, kept the short-haul ferry um, at sea for a bit more than 50 hours, which was uh, quite a test of the no-galley and no-bed arrangements. David Letts, we've heard from Russ and Jim and Vaughan about the frenetic pace of integration and the preparations ready, getting ready for, for the deployment. But also there's other stuff going on, isn't there? Now, each contributing nation providing military assets to these sorts of operations is enabled or constrained by rules of engagement, or ROE. Can you talk a little bit about this aspect of the operation, in particular, whether it provided any complications uh, for multinational commanders? Sure. Um, <clears throat> I think the first thing to to understand is, well, what, what are... ROE, what are rules of engagement? And um, if you go back, um, say, 100 years to World War One for Australia, the, the, there weren't such things. They didn't exist. There was direction to go and fight the enemy and come back when you win. That was about it. Um, whereas now, um, rules of engagement are orders um, that come from the appropriate military authority. In Australia's case, that's usually the Chief of Defence Force, but it may be the Chief of Joint Operations. Um, and it gives orders to subordinate commanders um, dealing with issues such as uh, use of force, uh, legal authority for, for what they're doing, uh, use of force, what type of weapons they can use, what area they're allowed to go in, um, what they do with detained people, um, what level of force, whether they're allowed to use lethal force or something less than lethal force detaining people, those types of things uh, would be typically contained in rules in, of engagement. Um, the rules themselves for any particular operation will be classified, so uh, we're unable and they remain classified uh, as far as I know from, from that uh, operation, so we're unable to talk about any specific rule, but just generally they, they, they contain those sort of things that I've talked about. Another preliminary point to note is that it's not going to be the case that every nation involved will have uh, rules of engagement or will have a developed concept of rules of engagement in the way that, um, for example, Australia uh, has. So it may be that some uh, contributing nations turn up with a maritime asset 
um, say a smaller unit from a smaller state, uh, where rules of engagement are new to them. They've got no idea um, about using rules of engagement. So that can, um, that can be a complication. Um, in terms of setting up the Interfet rules of engagement, uh, naturally, Australia took the lead uh, on those rules. They had to uh, deal with uh, the land environment, the air environment, and of course the maritime environment. And there were complications there with the maritime environment um, in relation to the status of this uh, area that we now know as Timor-Leste, East Timor, um, and the waters around um, Timor-Leste or East Timor as well. In developing the, the ROE, um, it ended up, there ended up being some involvement from some key coalition partners who had um, forward deployed uh, planning officers. And I should indicate also that um, ROE are put together um, uh, by operators with input from legal officers. Sometimes it's out of balance and they're put together by legal officers with input from um, operators, but they really have to be uh, rules that make sense to the operational commander because that's who the rules go to. And so that input from um, both the lawyer and also the operator to make sure that the rules are legally correct but also make operational sense is absolutely critical. And in terms of the Interfet ROE, uh, um, it really ended up being almost a take it or leave it for some of the uh, later arrivals to Interfet. Because one of the things about getting ROE issued is that they go um, um, through a number of uh, approval authorities, uh, ultimately up to the Chief of Defence Force, but they're also shared with government because they are ultimately directions from government. Um, in Australia's case, the Foreign Affairs Department, as well as the Attorney General's Department, um, will want to look at the rules uh, as well. And so it's not simply a matter of the military commander just issuing um, these orders and, and rules of engagement to subordinates. But once they are ordered, that uh, sorry, issued, um, that then can become a limiting factor because trying to get um, amendments to, to the rules, and especially in a coalition um, context where the coalition rules have been shared amongst all coalition partners, but individual states might have their, and, and did in many cases, have their own rules that may not necessarily be the same as the coalition, so the Interfet rules. And trying to get any amendments to that process amongst the coalition rules, the Interfet rules, um, presented problems. And, and, and indeed, uh, as, as the operation progressed, when General Cosgrove would issue orders down or rules of engagement further down, limiting the scope of, of what he'd been um, authorised to do. Some coalition partners took that as a change to the rules, whereas it was in fact the military commander saying, well, I've got the power to make a certain thing happen, but I'm going to exercise that and I'm not going to give it to you, my subordinate commander, um, unless certain things happen. So... So those sort of complications and, and understanding things like different legal obligations of all the troop contributing nations, domestic legal obligations, as well as international legal obligations, in terms of the complication for the commander means that that would affect how the commander might want to deploy his force. So, for example, he might have a, um, a force element that, that is able to conduct board, boardings in a certain way. 
And uh, he, he might assess that those type of boardings are more likely to take place in one area of the AO than another. So you would assign that asset to that area where those, say, higher level boardings might be more likely to take place compared to a, a unit where that authority to, to conduct those type of boardings wouldn't exist. So that's just an example of how the rules and the difference, difference in interpretation of rules amongst coalition partners might uh, mean that the commander would have to think about how his uh, naval assets are going to be deployed um, so that he makes best use out of those capabilities. Vaughan Rickson, Russ Crane told us a bit about the preparations in success in case she was called on to evacuate people during Operation Spitfire. Can you tell us a bit more about the work of other naval units and did Jarvis Bay have a role there? Um, yep. Um, my initial involvement, um, as Admiral Crane noted, the weekend of the uh, of the departure um, was complicated by a bout of chickenpox, which meant that I missed the first couple of trips and uh, and potentially had infected a number of the CEOs involved, which is probably another story. Um, uh, so. My, my involvement right up front was really only hearing the stories as, as people came back. Um, General Cosgrove regularly commented in, uh, in my first few trips there on the great sense of security that he and the land forces initially inserted by air and sea, uh, as well as the East Timorese people, got from the, the simple presence of the naval units close offshore um, that provided a, a great deal of um, security for them in knowing that there were people out there caring for them. Um, by the time I got into Dili, the routines were pretty well established uh, and we would be uh, embarking the deploying forces in Darwin, um, offloading uh, just by a, a simple berthing arrangement uh, in Dili, uh, simple brow, and then returning to Darwin with the evacuees who were mainly departing diplomatic and uh, UN personnel. Uh, when, when we had to start moving heavy equipment and bulk stores in, um, we shifted to a, a Mediterranean mooring arrangement at the main berth um, to offload uh, via our vehicle ramp. Uh, this proved to be um, impractical, though, because of the need to lay and relay mooring buoys um, out in the middle of the harbour each trip. And um, we eventually overcame this by um, placing a flat-top barge astern of where we berthed and uh, offloading to the barge. Um, once we were sorted that configuration out, we were able to offload about 20 or more vehicles in 40 minutes and uh, use forklifts to uh, move palletised goods on and off the ship. And uh, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, Vaughan, could you just explain for our listeners too, what is a, a Mediterranean moor? Okay, a Mediterranean moor is um, where rather than berthing with the ship's side alongside the wharf, you berth with the ship's stern to the wharf. So you'll uh, approach the wharf, turn at right angles, um, secure the bow of the ship by anchoring or by connecting to a buoy, and then back up to the back up to the wharf so that the stern sits up against the wharf. Um, when we were in that configuration, it meant that we could use the, uh, the A-frame that we'd installed on the back of Jarvis Bay to self-deploy a vehicle ramp that we carried and then we could drive things on and off the back of the ship. All right, Jim Stapleton, that brings us to the point of the Interfet deployment into East Timor, which began on the 20th of September. Can you take us through the initial stages of the deployment? And what were your highest priorities as the Maritime Component Commander and what, what were your major concerns? 
Well, <laughs> the immediate task that we had was obviously to establish some connectivity with the various assets assigned to the naval component, the other headquarters involved in the operation, uh, and to develop our concept of operations, uh, despite not knowing what the final composition of what the maritime assets that would be available uh, would be. The ships played a big part uh, in the development of the plans and contributed significantly, uh, as did maritime headquarters in Sydney, as the pieces came together and the puzzle became clearer as to what assets would be available and involved, not only from the RAN, but also from our international partners. Our aim throughout was to support the land forces achieve their goals by inserting a maximum combat force in minimum time. This was necessary to secure Dili uh, for other operations to take place. To this end, the early maritime planning focused on area surveillance, protecting the sea lines of communication with Timor and the provision of necessary sea lift assets to move and sustain the land force, all the troops and heavy equipment. Sustain was my biggest challenge and problem, and it was an issue which faced all the ADF planners. And from a perspective, the most significant shortfall was obviously heavy sea lift. Delays in the modernisation of our two US amphibious transport ships meant that Trabuk was the only heavy lift capability available from the outset. There were three LCHs, Balak, Papen, Brunei and Labuan as well, and they provided great support throughout the operations. In addition, as Vaughan Rickson has discussed, the employment of Jarvis Bay was also another great asset which, which we employed. Once we just developed, using the usual military planning uh, doctrines, we had some preliminaries which needed to be addressed. Um, force assignment and the capabilities, what capabilities were we going to end up with? Uh, what were the potential enemy capabilities? So that led to a various lists of courses of action for both in accordance with typical military planning, and the position of the forces before and throughout, and Russ has corrected that they didn't sail on the 19th, they sailed on the 17th, and that was necessary so that we could have ships ready in time for D-Day, which was, as I said, the 20th. But to do that, we had to come up with tactical assignments, we had to develop task group organisations where signals could be sent which would reach members of the intercept forces, um, we had to divide the, the units up into task elements, which were basically mission-oriented, and then, of course, we had the logistic support issues. So I heard it summarised once that we put a force, what ultimately looked like an army division on the ground with several weeks notice moving through points of entry that look like the port and airport of Coffs Harbour. You have to understand that there was no infrastructure. So everything that we had on the ground, we had to bring in. And so that involved a whole range of additional assets. And Vaughan's mentioned the pontoon, which we brought down from Singapore. We also had two offshore tugs, which we had hired 
And to make up for the logistics shortfall carrying capability in the ADF, we took ships up from trade and we started our long-time organisation, a merchant control of, of naval shipping, which was put in place in maritime headquarters and I must say managed very well. I rang an old term mate of mine who worked with a shipping company and I asked him what he had available. He sent me a list of merchant ships which they could provide, uh, which could pick up stores in Darwin and deliver to Dili. Uh, and that was one of the things which really improved the flow of logistics uh, in support of the Army operation ashore. So it's very important that we remember all the assets. So there's the naval control of shipping aspect, which the reserves did and did remarkably well. It was the taking of the ships up from trade, which were presented to us by a shipping company, uh, and they were provided. But the approval for all that had to come from AST. And that was a bit of a challenge on occasions because waiting for approval for days was not an optimum solution. We needed approval in hours to be able to get these ships from their locations into Darwin, loaded and up to East Timor as quickly as possible. So the challenge for me was mainly logistical and I think that even though logistics have been used as an argument that we almost lost in East Timor, or as the quote says, for the want of a nail, a kingdom was lost, I believe in the end we met the task that was provided to us. We will leave the story of the RAN and Interfet at this point. In the next episode, we will discuss the actual operations of the Interfet Naval Forces. My thanks again to Russ Crane, Jim Stapleton, David Letts and Vaughan Rickson. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you again for joining us and if you like this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so that other people can learn about the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.